the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Lynn Carson with a PhD in grain sciences. Sharing knowledge and helping you grow connections. Listening to the Baked in Science podcast. Welcome to Baked in Science. I am your host, Dr. Lynn Carson, CEO of Bakerpedia. Every month, we get dozens of questions on our website. With over a thousand visitors a day, Bakerpedia has become the central resource for the baking industry worldwide because people come to our site when they have questions on commercial baking. This episode is all on answering the questions posted on the website and through LinkedIn. It's done with my special friend, Dr. Debbie Rogers from AIB International. Before we start, I would like to thank our sponsor, MGP Ingredients. MGP Ingredients is the innovative producer of FiberSim. Do you want to add a minimum of 85% total dietary fiber content to your bakery products? Give FiberSim a try. This resistant wheat starch can provide higher water absorption as well as reduced mix times. Yes, you heard that right. Less, not more mixing. MGP's technical team is prepared to help you commercialize your next high fiber product. Contact them at sales at mgpingredients.com. And here's Debbie. Hello, everyone. Today we have Debbie Rogers from AIB and Melinda Piet, um, our BizDev uh, executive, joining me today on the show. Uh, we are going to go through questions that I ask. Um, but first, I would like to do a little introduction to Dr. Rogers. Dr. Rogers, you're from AIB. What do you do there? Well, I teach primarily, so I'll teach anything about function of ingredients, anything science-related, all the fun stuff um, for any kind of bakery product, um, wide variety of things. And then I help um, manage some of our other staff here, our great baking professionals. So mostly right. training for myself. Awesome. And um, that's why I believe I invited you onto the show today, because I feel like between you and I, we can um, attack the questions appropriately from all corners. <laughs> we have a variety of questions to work through today. So um, get your water ready and uh, all right. start. <laughs> all right. I'm ready to go. Melinda. All right. Well, these are the questions that we've been encountering on our website over the past couple of months. And let's just jump right in. Most wheat flour mills in Africa make use of various additives in order to improve the dough and bread characteristics. What can you say, Debbie, about the use of absorbic acids, ADA enzymes in improving bread characteristics? Well, generically, um, ascorbic acid and ADA are both used for dough strengthening properties. They're types of oxidant oxidants that can be used. Um, so they would give you increased volume and better dough handling characteristics, perhaps more uniform crumb grain, those kinds of things. When you say enzymes, that's a really big category. Enzymes can be a wide variety of things. It could be amylases that are used to work on the damaged starch to help with volume. But in many parts of the world, including Africa, 
There's other types of enzymes can be used. So that's a whole big generic category, but generally they're going to be used for improving dough handling and for volume. So as a follow-up to that question and a comment, uh, I would like to say that uh, the reason why these are used at certain flour mills and not uh, all the flour mills is probably because of the quality of the flour. Is that correct? That certainly helps. The idea is to help give more consistency to the flour, to improve the strength of the flours. So generally those are going to be used in bread and roll type of products only. Um, but yes, they're used sometimes when what people would call good quality flour, but certainly they're used to bolster the strength of flours that are not quite as strong as the baker would like. And these are mainly used because probably the baker would demand a certain mixing strength, a certain MTI that the flour miller is trying to meet. It is might be fair? an instrument that they're trying to meet with certain characteristics or just the certain dough handling characteristics or the finished volume, crumb grain kind of characteristics that they're trying to make. So the, the mill is trying to help strengthen the characteristics of that flour. If they're adding the alpha amylase or malt as the enzyme, Mm -hmm. Then they're also uh, looking at improved fermentation, which the ADA and, and ascorbic acid don't impact the fermentation. So I believe the baker has the right to ask what, to, what they want in there and also the right to refuse what they don't want in there. And that's going to vary between countries on how, in theory, yes, that is true. Mm -hmm. In reality, it may vary with what the size of the baker is compared to what the mill is producing, you know, if you're a little guy and the mill is making this flour for everybody else, you may not have the flexibility to get something different. Um, but as a general rule, yes, the baker should know what's in there and should be able to have some say. Okay. In an ideal world, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope every baker out there understands that, you know, the, the quality of your product is going to improve once you increase the production quantity of it. So the, the, more you, uh, the more you produce of something, the more you have to say in what kind of flower quality you get. So That's really, right. to, yeah, to really to focus on um, product quantity and quality as, as you go along baking. And could you suggest what kind of shortening is best for high quality buns with a very soft texture, good volume, and a shiny smooth surface finish? Uh, a lot of bakers now will actually be using oil, uh, soy oil or some other kind of oil um, in their buns, probably in that uh, 5-10% to 10% range. Um, if you're using a shortening, you probably would want kind of a, a medium melt point um, type of shortening that's kind of a generic shortening that's used in a lot of different applications um, to give you that soft texture. Um, but general, often if you really want that softness and sheen, um, oil may work a little bit better than a true shortening. So that's my question is, does shortening really contribute to the shiny and smooth surface finish? Or is that something else? Um, the texture, definitely. The surface, yeah. again, I think the oil contributes a little bit more than the shortening. 
Oh, okay. Um, but certainly the shortening can help with that. Okay. So um, when, you, when, they, when they ask what kind of shortening, so do we just talk just regular vegetable <laughs> shortening or ghee or, you know, what, what is a good shortening? <laughs> um, those are all going to have different flavor components. So mm -hmm. if you're, you need to consider that when you're looking at it, um, some people say butter is always better, you know, that's yeah. just a really flavor <laughs> characteristic, but um, certainly butter or ghee are going to help with um, some of the, the color and the flavor. Um, right. General, any vegetable shortening can certainly be used in, in buns. So whatever you can, um, reasonably obtain consistently is probably going to be the big thing. So I think part of the question here is say if I have both access to oil and to shortening, just regular vegetable mm -hmm. shortening, that's it's hard. Um, which do you think will give me a softer texture and better shine? Is it one or the other or they equally work the same? The shine you might get a little more from the oil. Okay. All right. Uh, the softness, I don't think there's going to be a lot of difference between, unless you have an extremely hard shortening. You don't want to use hard fat flakes, something of that sort. That's too hard of a texture. But. That's true. Well, that's a good suggestion. And so cultured wheat, is this sold wet or is it sold dry? <laughs> yes. I know. It's, it's both. Yeah. Um, I think most... Um, people would prefer to have the dry, and I guess the question comes back to what is the purpose of adding the cultured wheat? Um, but if we are talking about for shelf life purposes, mold inhibition, um, whichever is easier for you to obtain and to use, um, I've had much more experience with the dry than mm -hmm. with anything wet, but I do know that there are companies that do provide um, the wet form, if you would like to have that. But I think um, if, if somebody does provide the wet, wet form of cultured wheat, does it need mm -hmm. to be refrigerated? Or something? I would assume that it needs to be refrigerated. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it, that's why or a lot of... very quickly. Yeah, that's why a lot of cultured wheat out there is dry because you don't need to refrigerate it and it's also easier to dispense, it's right? very easy to dispense. Yeah. So it certainly is the easiest way to do it. But I do know that companies provide the wet if the baker prefers to use that for some reason. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. What is the actual effect of higher low water abs values <laughs> obtained from a farinograph on the dough characteristics, mixing properties, and bread aspects? Well, I'm assuming that they're applying those um, absorptions, high absorption or low absorption for the farinograph, and using those in the product. Is that how you are interpreting that, Lynn, that question? So if we're talking, we have high absorption um, in your dough, you're going to have slack, sticky product. Um, you're going to be having um, fast, what appears to be faster fermentation. So yeah. we may get overproofing, um, which then may lead to, you know, wheat crumb, flat tops, low volume from collapse, those kinds of things from the excess absorption. And the opposite from low absorption, you're going to have very tight uh, doughs that will be difficult sheeting molding. You're not going to get good seals on them as you're molding them. Um, 
less oven spring from the dough being a little bit too tight, um, dry texture, whole, whole myriad of things from low absorption. That's true. I mean, this question itself is like an entire session in your, re <laughs> in your residence course. So I suggest that people listening to this should go to AIB residence course to understand. <laughs> there's a How lot. There's no simple act. Yes, it's not a simple answer. It's not a simple answer. I mean, it's 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 that's why what we do at Bakerpedia is important because we we give sporadic short answers, but to really address the bigger questions on how to um, figure out farinograph issues um, and flower quality, people really need to reach out to you guys at AIB and um, understand that that's what the residence course is for. And um, because answering questions like that is not going to um, help in, in the long run. You know, we can solve, you know, short-term problems, but long-term problems, this is really, I feel, is a, a flower quality, a training issue, and also, you know, ingredient formulation. Right. And understanding so, the process all the way through. Right, correct. All those things tie together. So, yes, it is a fairly yeah. complicated uh, baking is a me messy system. Everything impacts everything else. Correct. I mean, our farinograph page could answer, um, uh, you know, quick questions on high and low water absorption, but how these affect um, dough characteristics and mixing properties needs to be, you know, um, it, it's it's a whole training session just based on farinograph absorption. We'll be glad to help more detail yeah. with training. Yeah, we'll send them your way. All right. Thank you. <laughs> We're, we are about to be entering a very, very dry and less humid weather, except for here in Puddletown, PDX. <laughs> um, how do we ensure breads don't dry out so fast and retain their moisture? What kind of packaging is being used? Again, these are, you know, we don't get much information. Yeah. So if you have the proper packaging, then, then the issue is probably over cooling. Yeah, I um, think that's the, the issue right the, there. The, the cooling time has been allowed to get too long, so you're losing too much humidity um, from the moisture from the product before you get it packaged, and then you're just fighting a losing battle after that in a very dry environment. Um, so proper cooling time and temperature is probably the key there. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, especially when you scale up, they, st they still use artisanal methods of feel and touch. Feel yes. and touch. Oh, it, it, it's cool enough. Let's go package it, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your recommendation in terms of temperature? Probably generic would be 95F, which, yeah. Yeah. So ba basically, uh, Dr. Rogers is recommending to use a thermometer to be inserted into the bread product to reach no, you know, no further than, no, no far no less than, than 95 <laughs> degrees yeah. Fahrenheit before packaging it. Yeah. I really think that um, this person pretty much uh, um, uh, uh, cool out the bread so much, too much before packaging it. So, yeah. um, again, you know, it's one of those things where you, you, know, you got to stop the feel and touch method and start using thermometers. 
Yeah, and some of the products may need to be packaged even warmer than that, depending on what they are and what the moisture content, how much you've done. It can be a, a combination also with the bake loss. If you've Correct. overbaked it a little bit and then you give it too long a cooling time, then you're really going to be very low. That's in true. Water. So. Right, that's true. Um, so, you know, in terms of packaging, there's always this fine line between putting too much moisture in and then drying it out. Yes. So what, what is your best recommendation to thread that fine line? I'm not sure I understand. Like packaging. If, if you don't cool it, cool if it cool enough. It enough, then you're going to get condensation. Right, right. Or have the risk of condensation, which is going to contribute to potential mold growth. If you overcool it and it gets too low a temperature, you may be drying it too much, especially in a very dry environment. Right. Um, then you'll be, it'll be more the staling type of, of product that you face. And there you may need, perhaps you may need some um, variable for, variations in your formulation that when you have extremely, um, you know, seasonal mm -hmm. times when you're getting into that low moisture, low humidity, more dry, you may need a little more crumb softener of some type, either fat or oil, which is the, the easiest crumb softener we have, and we often forget about that, or some mm -hmm. other type of softener, enzymes, or adding a, um, an emulsifier of some sort. You may need to have a little different formulation in that drier time to keep the texture softer than you would in the more humid climate. So you might have to do some seasonal variations on your formula. There you go. Um, speaking of staleness, how best can we reduce <laughs> it? And what additives and enzymes can be added to flour in order to reduce it in bread? Well, <coughs> again, fat or oil is also the one, always the one we forget about. Just mm -hmm. increase the fat a little bit, you get a little more softness. Of course, that messes up calorie count. Um, mono and diglycerides, particularly monoglycerides, are very, very effective. Um, SSL, datum to some extent, um, amylases, there are a lot of enzyme solutions that are available from a variety of companies. Um, most are based on some sort of alpha amylase type, um, whether it's a maltogenic, um, also some xylanases, some other combinations of enzymes can be used. Um, again, it's going to vary a little bit on what type of product um, you're putting it into, which works the best. Um, but there are a lot of enzymes that the bakery can add, probably not have the mill, but these are added at the bakery um, that could be used to help reduce right. the staleness. And I like to add to that too, don't bake it too much. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, back to don't dry it out. <laughs> if you dry it out, you've got croutons no matter what right. you do. Exactly. Um, what happens when proofing dough begins to bulge out like bubbles <laughs> from certain areas? This one is a really interesting question. Again, there's a lot of things that could be causing this, so it's difficult to troubleshoot from afar. Um, excess gas production in the dough or weakness in the dough, it's generally where it's coming from. You've got that bubble that's capturing and you maybe have coalescence underneath. Um, that are causing these often and would be called a blister. Um, you have overmixing, overproofing, uh, weaker flour, um, excess humidity in the proof box. Um, 
um, yeah, a whole myriad of things can be contributing to um, to those that cause or that problem. That's true. It's so hard to answer this question, not not really knowing what the process conditions are. Yeah, it's it's some it's a lot to do with uh, uh, the instability and proofing most of the time. So. But if you don't get the dough right up before you get to the proofing, you can, I mean, that can be the cause, root cause. So, yeah. What does, what does <laughs> the stability in minutes actually mean for the farinograph? I find it hard to relate it with bread quality. Also, does it have anything to do with the shelf life of the bread? I don't see any relationship between stability, farinograph stability, and uh, staling or shelf life um, at all. The stability is giving you an idea of the how much tolerance you have plus or minus your optimum mix time. So if you have a large stability, that means you can undermix or overmix for a longer time period and still have a, a reasonable dough strength. If you have short stability, you don't have much tolerance. But again, it's looking at over and under mixing. And I always want to remind people that mixing doesn't just happen in this piece of call a mixer in the bakery. If you're taking your dough out of the mixer and dumping it into a dough pump, um, that's still mixing as far as the flour is concerned because mixing is just mechanical energy in. So if you have a larger stability, you may have a little more to mixing tolerance really is what it's telling you. So when a baker sees that their stability reduces all of a sudden, do you recommend that they shorten their mixing time or use less water or what do you No, do you I would just say you need to watch the mix time because you have less tolerance. So you have okay. any variation is going to probably have more of an impact on your product. Um, if you end up with, well, I think for looking at, at mix time, I'm not just looking at stability because again, that's looking at over and under. So if Freenograph lesson, if you're looking at the um, MTI, the mixing tolerance index, that's only looking at over mixing. So if you see a big change in that, if your MTI goes up significantly, meaning you get more breakdown with over mixing, then you might need to undermix the mixer if you are going into a dough pump so that it doesn't come out soup from the dough pump. Um, that's true. So, yeah. But not the, the stability is a little less directly linked. That's true. I keep hearing this word <laughs> clean label in your podcast. What does that even mean? Well, it means in the U.S. that people are concerned about chemical sounding names on the ingredient label. So... Um, there is no federally regulated definition of what a clean label is. So basically what I recommend people to do is, you know, open your kitchen cupboard and whatever in there is considered clean label, you know. So that sounds simple on the surface, but, you know, behind the scenes, and underlying ingredient statements, there are things in your, in your kitchen cupboard that 
aren't really clean label either. So that's why it's very gray, you know. It's very hard to define this. Um, it really depends on um, your audience, who you're targeting, and really where you do you want to end up. And in the U.S., you know, there are certain supermarkets that um, have their own definition of clean, that don't allow bromates, that don't allow ADA, or, or you know, even some don't allow uh, SSL. Um, even though they are all FDA approved ingredients. So it really depends who your audience are. Debbie, do you have anything to add to what you feel um, is considered clean label? No, some people are looking at preservatives, some are looking at flavors, some are looking at different sugars. I mean, there, as you said, there is no definition and it's not just the US, it's worldwide. Um, there are no set definitions, and it's what your consumers, you just have to listen to your customers and try to guess um, what they will and will not accept. Um, the challenge for a baker is many times consumers will say one thing, but their purchasing dollars don't necessarily back that up. So it is a, an ongoing challenge for the baking, for the food industry, not just baking industry. So when I was in um, London, actually, uh, I went to the aisles of um, uh, of uh, to to the grocery aisles, and in London, um, I think in most of Europe, they did, they don't call it the clean label; they call it free from, and um, it really intrigues me because they are more familiar. Uh, uh, to that term free from, then they are clean label. So for that free from aisle, which I, I it still like confuses me, what would anyone want to call an aisle free from aisle? <laughs> it's just stacked with free from dairy, free from free gluten, from, free, from. free from artificial, you know, preservatives. So, you know, it's, it's a whole different movement outside the U.S. altogether. Um, and I feel that the free-from movement in Europe is what's pushing the gluten-free um, trend in Europe because I feel like the gluten-free trend in Europe is so much stronger. Um, I, I don't know what's your perspective on that, Debbie. Yeah, but a little bit that has to do with human genetics, um, that European the Europe will have a higher concentration of people who technically are celiac, um, so really do need the gluten-free products. But the free from, yeah, it's just as confusing as the, as the clean label, and we do see some free from here in the States also. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so how are you gonna market? Labeling here, you have to be a little cautious because of the FDA labeling laws to make sure that you that and I can put a plug in that if anyone has labeling questions we have a great group here at AIB that can answer those questions. I do not attempt to answer labeling. <laughs> Label is a whole different. It's yeah, a whole nother area. world. Right. Why are my hamburger buns <laughs> and continuing to stick to my pans? <laughs> uh, the first thing I would say is our What's the condition of those pans? Yeah, that's they're glazed. Is too. the glaze good, or do they need to be reglazed? Because that's if it wears off over time, you're going to have big problems. Um, the other thing is humidity. Um, humidity in your proof box, in particular, um, there you get excess humidity, and you can get a lot of problems there too. Unsticking. Um, there are some new pans that new types of pans out in the last few years, the 
Um, they don't require, require you to reglaze them. Um, they're more of a Teflon type of pan. Um, but check the humidity in your proof box and look at the conditions of the pans. Be my two first keys. And what's the difference between patent flour and clear flour? <laughs> oh, um, short answer. If um, patent flour is going to be more concentrated heart of the endosperm, the clear flour is what is removed, the difference between a straight grade flour and a patent flour. So it's still mostly endosperm, but it has a higher concentration of the bran, alurone germ, the outside portions of the kernel. So it's going to be a darker color, um, have a more bucky, stronger, more elastic type of texture to products made from it. Um, Color ash is going to be much higher because you have more of the alurone brand that's in there. I make hand-tossed pizza like Domino's. I keep the fresh dough ball in the refrigerator for six days, well covered. But the problem is my dough ball, which exceeds the shelf life of three days that to rise properly, doesn't bake well at all. I have a Convair pizza oven. I bake pizza at 245 degrees for six minutes. Please help me. Um, doesn't bake well. I'm not sure what they're meaning, but I assume you're not getting um, fermentation. So generally your yeast is burning out. Um, keeping dough, dough is still going to continue to age in the retarder. The yeast is going to continue a very slow fermentation, and um, you're just running out of sugars for the yeast, I would guess. Generally, two or three days is the recommended time for most yeast. There are some special yeast that you could use um, that would allow you to have a little longer um, fermentation, but it's still going to be happening in the retarder. It doesn't stop. Freeze it if you want a uh, longer shelf life, then you run into some other challenges. Um, but if you're saying that you're not getting the crust volume, you're not getting the color on the crust, um, blotchy, pale, that's because your yeast is just running out of sugars and uh, isn't functioning anymore. I would guess that's what you're referring to. You're just trying to keep it too many days. There are also some very specialized yeasts that um, can be used, but again, for a, a home baker, for making small batches, probably um, may not be worth the cost. <laughs> so would you recommend calcium propionate to spray on yeast-risen donuts after frying? What would you approximate the shelf life to be if you did so? Uh, I don't think calcium propionate is all that soluble. Um, so spraying CalPro on a product um, may not be the best option. You can spray propionic acid. Um, I, um, I, I agree with that because I personally haven't seen anyone spray CalPro, uh, but they have sprayed alcohol. Is that correct? Right. You can spray yes. ethanol, um, ethanol, potassium sorbate, right. um, natamycin. Right. Um, yeah, so there's other options, but right. CalPro 
And I mean, to spray calcium propionate on yeast resin is like, I mean, I personally wouldn't do that because yeast resin donuts stale immediately after like 24 hours. Yeah, so if you so do mold growth, it, yeah, if mold you is probably not going to be the the issue there, right? Um, so I would approximate the shelf life of a yeast risen donut to be what maximum forty eight hours. Debbie, what do you think? Probably. I mean, it's yeah. certainly going to be getting very stale. Right. Um, now, if you're locking shelf life, as I mean, Calpro is going to be a mold inhibitor. It's not affecting the the textural right exactly. Shelf life. So it doesn't. Um, matter. I think the texture is going to go f way before mold. If you Correct. have that much, if you rapid of mold growth on a yeast donut, I think you need to clean your bakery. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to, if I insult anybody. But, uh, no, no it should not I, be a problem. I think, I think you are so on point with that one. Um, but let's let's put this towards a cake donut. What about a cake donut? Um, they're what, much what longer you, shelf life. Yeah, um, I mean, what would you do to re recommend to reduce antimicrobial growth? Again, you could use um, potassium sorbate, sorbic acid, natamycin, um, okay. ethanol probably won't work as well. Um, but there are, you know, a lot of snack cakes and cake donut type of products. Um, those if you can use chemical preservatives, those would be ones that could be used for extending that shelf life. All right. So speaking of mold, we mass produce sliced bread at our industrial bakery in rural India. During the monsoon season, again, Portland, we are facing severe problems of molding within one or two days of packaging. The cooling time is two and a half hours, and we also use some preservatives to give a shelf life up to five days. What could be the possible reasons of molding so fast, and what can we do to resolve this? Wow. <laughs> um, humidity certainly is there. Um, enemy at that point. Um, if it's a monsoon, you're going to have a really high humidity. And even though you cool it at two to five or two and a half hours, um, you know, what is the temperature of that after at that point in time? Um, vacuum cooling would be an operate an option. Um, they did say it was an industrial bakery, so a large scale bakery. So vacuum cooling can be used. Um, which would be a very quick cooling. Um, and then you could package it so that you don't have, uh, you get the humidity, the water activity down very quickly in the product. Um, so that could certainly be one option. Um, minimize contamination, again, back to cleaning the bakery, making sure all the employees are using proper um, sanitation. Um, you can use some other types of mold inhibitors. They say they're using some preservatives, but I have no idea what or how much. Um, uh, what the pH of the product it gets to be a challenge. There's not a whole lot you can do with that. But, um, yeah, tropical. Um, you can also, there are some bakeries in monsoon type of areas, very warm, humid 
um, that use some uh, UV, ultraviolet, um, or use ozone as, again, another way to um, try to sterilize the outside of the product just before packaging um, to help minimize that mold growth without using the chemical preservatives. Those are some options that you can try, but it's a big challenge, definitely, when you yes. have that high humidity and that high of heat. Great. Hey, um, we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, we are going to answer kick questions. Hey, let's take a break here to thank our sponsor, AIB International. Testing your ingredients is a critical component of producing quality baked goods, but understanding the reports produced by testing equipment is not always simple. Take, for example, the farinograph. A farinogram tells you seven key things about your dose properties. Dough development time, absorption, arrival time, departure time, stability time, time to break down, and mixing tolerance index. These can be confusing. Now, discover more about ingredient testing equipment, techniques, and results in the AIB International's 16-week Baking Science and Technology Resident Course. Contact AIB today at 800-633-5137 for more information. What does sorbic acid even do? And can I use it to extend the shelf life of my cupcakes? Um, sorbic acid is one of the acids that does work very well as a mold inhibitor. It has something to do with the transport mechanism of the cell wall of microorganisms, um, and therefore it basically kills them, so it does work well. Um, and yes, certainly it can be used in cupcakes or any type of um, snack cake or cake type of products. Um, both potassium sorbate and sorbic acid um, certainly can be used in those cake systems. Can I use potassium sorbate to extend the shelf life of pastries? And if not, what can I use? Um, if you're using making a yeast leaven pastry, then using potassium sorbate can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, same as it is in any bread and roll type of product because of the impact on the yeast. Right. Um, but certainly, yes, you can use it. It's just if especially in the non-yeasted pastries. That pastries, again, is a big definition, so I'm not sure what all they're, you're looking at. Um, but any of the preservatives we've been talking about could certainly be used. Yeah, which would be like, you know, um, CalPro, uh, sorbic, sorbic acid, right? Those, yeah. those can be used as well. Yeah, right. netamycin. Again, we're looking yeah. at shelf life as far as mold free shelf life yeah i think that's pastries. what it is yeah, yeah. can sodium and sodium metabisulfite Very be good. used thank you i try <laughs> that's a hard one <laughs> sodium, sodium metabisulfite what, what about it can i use it in cake production that to me is a very interesting question. I suppose you could use it, but I'm not sure why you would want to. Sodium metabisulfate yeah. is used as a sulfite is used as a reducing agent or to help weaken structure. So perhaps if this company 
um, question came from someone who does not have access to a wide variety, maybe doesn't have uh, soft wheat flour, mm -hmm. is using hard wheat flours that are too strong for the cake, mm -hmm. looking for a way to weaken. Um, I suppose it could be used. Yeah. I have never done it, but that's an um, interesting, interesting thought, though. <laughs> but that's <laughs> that's the only place where I see that you might here. use it. Yeah, <laughs> if you're using a really strong flour and you're trying to make a cake, right? Um, that could it help could weaken. Work. Yeah, yeah, it could work. It could work. Yeah. Do sap <laughs> react with so sodium bicarb in powder form under some moisture? of about 10%. So uh, let's clarify the question. Um, what you're asking is does um, SAP react with sodium bicarbonate even at a moisture of less than 10%? So I think what they're asking yes. is, will your baking powder that is a SAP and sodium bicarbonate, is it possible for that to react, let's say in the warehouse, in the dry right. form before you put it in your product? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. Um, Moisture and heat are both required, but it can certainly slowly react. Um, the higher the moisture, the higher the temperature, the more quickly it's going to react. But mm -hmm. um, I certainly wouldn't say never at 10% um, moisture. There's, it will be a slow reaction, but yes, it certainly can pre-react. And with saps, um, there are a wide variety of, of saps, sodium acid pyrophosphate, um, usually sold by reaction rate number. So the higher the reaction rate, the more quickly you would have dangers of pre-reaction because that means that they are a faster reacting in the mixer. They'll also be faster reacting under, under other conditions. Right. So um, the way I look at this is maybe they're asking what is the best way, you know, to, for a dry blend. Uh, what is the best um, acid, leavening acid for a dry blend to use with uh, sodium bicarbonate as the base, right? Um, you recommend anything? In that case, this, if you have a, a humid area and you're worried about pre-reaction, the slower the leavening acid is, the slower it would be um, reacting in the warehouse or prematurely, yeah. mm -hmm. but that may not give you the reaction rate you need in your product. So maybe something like an encapsulated form? Encapsulated either acid or base, one or the yes, other, could, could help if you're having too much pre-reaction and you need a faster acid. That's true. Yeah. Oh, things we have at our fingertips today. That's right. <laughs> Lots of options. Right. Speaking of modern baking science, can you rec recommend a chemical preservative for cake to give it a three to four month shelf life? I find that question very interesting because I don't see that kind of shelf life in the form of like a large loaf cake here in the U.S., but no, I saw plenty cake. of, yeah, but I saw plenty yeah. of it in Europe. So it's got to, that goes, that got to be some kind of magic in there, Debbie, for three to four months. <laughs> um, well, I have seen cakes using, again, potassium sorbate, sorbic acid, netamycin, um, those products to extend the um, shelf life if we're again we're looking at mold free mm -hmm. um, preservative to extend the shelf life and there again in Europe would or in many countries other than the US you're going to be um, using more of a um, 
lower ratio formulation, um, so less sugar. Yeah. Um, if in a high sugar situation, you may not even need the preservative, um, but in the lower sugar, where that would then result in a little higher water activity, you might need some chemical preservative. So snack cakes often will use those, so I would assume that there's no reason that they couldn't be used in a larger cake format also. Hmm. Okay. And um, so if you're not worried about the uh, antimicrobials, what can you use it in there to... Um, uh, to improve the softness of the of a you know low ratio cake over a few months. Again, fats the first thing. They well, if you don't want to use thing, fat. fat or oils, but if you don't want to use that, um, <laughs> there are several um, new enzyme systems that are out that do work in um, a high sugar system or that work in the pH. I mean, that's the okay. challenge of just taking enzymes from a bread system and putting them into a cake. Everything is different. pH, yeah. water activity. Um, ingredient, the ratio of the flour to the other ingredients, the proportion of the substrate there. But they have, there are several that have been developed recently that um, specifically for uh, cake, I think they started a lot with cake donuts, um, oh, but with cake okay. type of systems that can be used that would work quite well with helping extend the texture uh, for a longer time period. That, that's a good comment on that one. Um, also, do you have any um, recommendations for um, the fillings uh, in terms of, you know, cake fillings for shelf life? Because I do see a lot of filled cake fillings out there. Um, yeah, and there you're going to be the biggest challenge, I think, will be balancing the water activity mm -hmm. um, so that um, you can don't have migration of moisture from cake to filling and back and forth um, to keep the crystal structure of your filling. You don't want sugar crystallization. Um, and again, if you run into moisture migration issues where you're getting the higher water activity, whichever way it's going, you're going to have more likely to have mold growth. Um, generally, I don't think of fillings as generally having an issue with mold growth. It's more of changing the physical structure texture. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with that water, balancing the water activity of the filling and the cake. I've had a question. Yeah, I've got a question posed to me before that modified starches um, would they function well in such systems as fillings and cakes? They will certainly slow water migration. Um, modified starches and gums of a wide variety of different gums or hydrocolloids um, can work very well for helping slow moisture migration. They're not really changing water activity, but they function like a. If you think of a huge maze. The water molecule is going to want to move, but it, it's very difficult to move through the complex system of this, the modified starches or a lot of the gums. Um, so we can certainly use those to help slow down that, that water migration. And we that's, do that all the time. That's great. Now, do you cover these topics in your residence courses? Yes, we do. We cover okay. um, sweet goods, bread and rolls, tortillas, pretty much wide variety of baked products. We talk about functions of ingredients. We talk about processing technologies, the things we've kind of alluded to here. So it is a, a very intensive course. Now, when um, does the next one start? The next one will start on January 31st. Okay. So there is time okay. if somebody is interested. Now, this um, is, a, as I mentioned, an intensive course. It is uh, four months, so it's like a mm -hmm. college semester. 
Um, January 31st yeah. to May 22nd. Wow. Um, next course. But we then you but then from you all over out, the world. You right, come so out with a, you, such you, a wealth of knowledge. Right. We really focus on troubleshooting yeah. um, and understanding systems so that you can go into your product or process that will probably be a little different than what we teach. But if you understand the concepts, mm -hmm. you can apply them and do the troubleshooting in your facility. And that's really what we try to emphasize. Now, say if a, if a student has problems, you know, paying for the tuition, do you guys offer any help? We offer scholarships for students that are not being sponsored by their company. Um, so self, what we would call a self-sponsored student, mm -hmm. we offer um, for the tuition. And um, right now we have a little special where we give a little discount for people enrolling for this next class. Um, we've got some other special scholarship money that we're applying to that. So everyone, even company sponsored, get um, somewhat of a break for this next wow, class. That's awesome. Um, and there so will only be one class in 2019. We're not going to do a fall class. So if you're interested at all, Give us a shout, now, right? Get enroll and, now, uh, and we do have um, people who will help if you need visas. Uh, if oh, you're from very cool. US. Very cool. And uh, where can they go to find more information about this class? On the AIB website, which is www.aibonline.org. That's awesome. Debbie, thank you so much for dropping by today and helping me answer all these questions. And, <laughs> um, you can't imagine, you know, every couple of months we are just stacked up high with questions. So you are the, definitely the right person to approach to help me answer this. Well, it was quite all right. It was kind of fun to do. So thanks, Lynn. Thank nice you. meeting right, you, bye. Debbie. Good to meet you, Melinda. Bye. 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 A big thank you for the Laval Food Partners for bringing this episode to you. As Debbie mentioned, different enzymes have different functions, and a combination of these are required for your process. Rely on the experts at Delaval to deliver a clean enzyme solution for your bread, tortillas, flatbread, organic, gluten-free, and donuts. Go to Delaval Food Partners today at D-E-L-A-V-A-U-F-O-O-D dot com. One more thing before we end. Please like, comment, and subscribe to Baked in Science. Till the next episode, bakers. Keep asking those questions. Oh, 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 oh